Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, it's part one of the Woodstock Back to the Garden 50th Anniversary Collection featuring producers Andy Zax and Brian Kehue. Hey, Dennis. Guess what's on my laptop screen right now? A fly. Uh, yeah, that too. Rhino.com. Rhino.com is so chock full of amazing content every day, and they've really expanded it. If you haven't checked it in a while, it really is something to behold. What are you looking at right now, Dennis? You know me. I like to be the one at parties that knows more than anybody else. So I'm looking at the upcoming releases because I want to be ahead of everybody else and know you know which box set I'm going to have on my shelf. There's album of the day. They've got contests. Like right now, you can win this killer monkey's lithograph that's signed by the artist, Alex Ross. It's limited edition. It's cool. There are product announcements, upcoming releases that you're going to want to really sink your teeth into. And of course, this is the time of year where it seems like there's all kinds of great releases coming down the pike. You know, we've got It's Alive, the 40th anniversary deluxe edition of the Killer Ramones album, live album. The Replacements, Dead Man's Pop, which is a killer new Replacements box set coming out. Miles Davis rubber band. The Black Sabbath vinyl collection coming out. You get the idea. There's tons of great stuff. If you like good music, you've got to check out rhino.com and... Don't forget to sign up for the Rhino newsletter because you can get the album of the day delivered right to your inbox. You don't even have to go looking for it. It comes to you. So what do we got for the good folks today, Dennis? Well, something different, and I'm not exaggerating. Now, I'm not even going to discuss how old I was when the original Woodstock happened, But I will say that I was just barely a teenager, and oh my gosh, it's the 50th anniversary. But as usual, Rhino isn't just doing it up in style. It's doing it up in major style. There's a slew of Woodstock releases that Rhino is putting out. The Mac Daddy of them all, the 38-disc Woodstock Back to the Garden set, is something to behold and... 
as such, you should go to rhino.com and look at the unboxing video to see exactly how elaborate it is. At the time that we're producing this podcast, there are less than 200 sets left out of a limited edition run of 1,969 sets. It will sell out. It's just a matter of time now before it's gone. But check it out because it is really marvelous, everything that's included in it. Masaki Kiyoki, Grammy-winning artist, put together this package, and it is nothing short of magnificent. They located more than 60 multi-track reels that were originally recorded, 100 or more soundboard reels recorded by the onstage crew, and sorting through those tapes... And Eddie Kramer. And Eddie Kramer. Famed engineer Eddie Kramer had his hands on the board. Eddie Kramer and Lee Osborne. And I mean, these, these had been edited, mislabeled, lost, and... I mean, this is, you talk about a life goal. <laughs> this is one of those. And Andy Zachs and Brian Kehue, you know, and mastering engineer Dave Schultz, they didn't interfere with the tapes, which is exactly the, I don't want to give away this podcast, but it's, it's so counterintuitive the way that they went about this project. Well, they did a great job producing it. And not only did the full 38-disc set get produced, but there are also three other releases for Woodstock. There is a 10-CD set that has 162 tracks across those 10 discs, and it is the first set that is ever released, it's out now, that features live recordings from every performer at the festival. It's also available as a digital download. It's a massive one. And there's also a 3-CD set, which has 42 tracks. It's available... Like I said, a three-CD set, but it's also available on LP. The three-CD set has the same track listing on a five-LP set. And we used the the middle ground, the 10-LP set, uh, as the basis for the music on this podcast, which is very different. One of the things that Zach's says is, you know, the Back to the Garden is an audio verite documentary because that's kind of what he felt Woodstock the film was. And so we went that way on the podcast. This is not an interview. This is the music. And it's Andy and Brian talking about putting together the project. And like Woodstock itself, which was mammoth in attendance and the length of the festival, this podcast could not be contained in one episode. So we're splitting it up into two. Yeah, this is something completely different, as Monty Python says, and it's groovy. So let's get into it. We have a gentleman with us. It's the gentleman upon whose farm we are, Mr. Max Yasger. I'm a farmer. I don't know. I don't know how to speak to. 20 people at one time, let alone a crowd like this. But I think you people have proven something to the world. Not only did it come to battle, not only did it come to battle or Sullivan County or New York State, you've proven something to the world. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. We, we have had no idea that there would be this size group. And because of that, you had quite a few inconveniences as far as water and food and so forth. Your producers have done a mammoth job. 
The scene I just taken care of. They enjoy a vote of thanks. But above that, the important thing that you're proving to the world is that a half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children that are older than you are, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music. And I God bless you for it. Warner Brothers has a large warehouse full of tapes, and among those is a whole section of Woodstock tapes that were recorded on the day. Uh, on a stage setup just behind the main stage, they had a local crew to record each performance and the announcements from the stage. Our job is to take those tapes, which have been in storage for decades now, bring them back to my studio, which has a collection of vintage tape machines, and we'll play the tapes back and try to recreate the sound that happened on stage at the time. Uh, doing the presentation of sound very accurate to what was on the day, not enhancing it too much, trying to keep it very literal, very realistic. People had recorded concerts before in different years for different reasons. The Woodstock team was relatively new to recording a remote concert. Um, they set up behind the stage, they had long cables running towards the stage, and they shared the signal. If something's coming off a guitar amplifier, it would go to the front of house mixer, but also a separate signal going straight to the recording truck where they could control the sound better. They had two eight-track tape machines able to capture eight channels of audio. And the reason they had two is as one was playing and the tape would be about to run out, they would put tape on the second machine and start it up to catch the overlap. So you'd essentially, theoretically, always have coverage of what was recorded on tape at all times. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most beautiful men in the whole world, let's welcome Mr. Richie Havens. Five Dino's guitar. Hello, can you hear? Groovy, groovy. Okay, um, wow, it's really beautiful to see so many people together. I know it might be a tiny bit uncomfortable, but so can sleeping be a tiny bit uncomfortable. Right? Right, okay, groovy. Can you turn it back up? <laughs> Um, tape from the time is actually very robust. Um, it's not fragile. It does hold up very well. And we don't have to do anything special in order to play it, as you do with some other tapes. But tape from 1969 is very sturdy, very, it stores very well, and it preserves, without decaying, the original sound quite well. So we pull it out, we can use it quite easily. Um, there wasn't much time for them on the ground to document what they were doing. They barely wrote on the tape box even which performer was on it. Certainly not which songs or what instruments were on which channel. They were moving forward very quickly, barely able to handle the tasks of each day. And we had many issues with that where they were just trying to keep up with the circus that was going on. Well, as Brian said, yeah, the tapes from 50 years ago hold up fine. It's not so much the physical tapes that are the problem, it's what's on those tapes that are really the problem. And if you think about it, you know, you've heard the expression field recordings. These are literally field recordings. This was a field. This was a dairy farm in the middle of nowhere that was subject to fluctuations in temperature, humidity, 
and voltage, most pertinently. And the result of that, and the fact that the, the fact that, despite the fact that the Woodstock PA was built by a guy named Bill Hanley, who's basically the father of modern recorded concert audio. Um, he's kind of a technical genius. He's the, he's the Edison or the Tesla of live concert audio. And Woodstock was his first major proof of concept. So the fact that we actually have recordings at all is largely due to the fact that Bill Hanley constructed things in a sturdy enough fashion that even, even despite rain and some of the worst, you know, most non-standard recording conditions known to mankind, nothing ever failed totally, only partially, partially enough to give us 48, 49, 50 years later, gigantic headaches trying to restore it all. What would you do if I sat out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Let me your ears and I'll sing you a song. I will try not to sing out of key. The archiving issue, you know, as regards the Woodstock tapes, so they didn't write much on the boxes at the time. Um, They barely were able to write artist names on them, and frequently those are wrong. You'll see them crossed out. But the fossil record of Woodstock tape boxes has passed through, it passed through a lot of hands at various points. So after the concert, it went to the sound crew who were working on the, the Michael Wadley's documentary. That was where everything went immediately. And those people were working, you know, their objective was we're making a movie here and we're making it on a very tight time schedule. There was really only about eight months from the time that the show occurred in New York uh, until the movie premiered in, in March of 1970. So at the time, it would have seemed unlikely to them that after their work was concluded that anyone would ever care about any of this material ever again. So they were a little careless, I think that would be fair to say. There are cuts, there are things that are missing. There are things that were kind of swapped around. There are strange edits that, that produced trims that, where the trims are in completely different places. And in some cases, the, the jigsaw puzzling everything back together took us years, literally years. Um, there are things that we looked for in 2007 that we didn't find until three months ago. Yeah, it's far out, man. I don't know if you, I don't know, uh, like how many of you can dig how many people there are, man. Like I was rapping to the fuzz, <laughs> right? Can you dig it? Man, there's supposed to be a million and a half people here by tonight. Can you dig that? New York State Thruway is closed, man. <laughs> yeah, a lot of freaks. <laughs> Guy with the ticket to Mexico. No, it couldn't look much stranger Walking in a hall with his things and all Smiling said it was a lone ranger Coming into Los Angeles Bringing in a couple of keys Don't touch my bags if you please, Mr. Customs Man Woodstock had an interesting stage. They'd come up with the concept of a rotating stage. If you want to think of a Lazy Susan or something in the kitchen that rotates, while one band was setting up uh, in the background, getting ready for their set, another band was out on stage facing the audience, playing their performance. But when they would turn the stage around, they would suddenly have to move the microphones from the first drum set to the second drum set. And the first group may have had horns, the second group has no horns, but two keyboard players. So there were changes to be made 
And none of this was well planned out. So this caused some of the issue where you have microphones moving from place to place. Also, that, that revolving stage failed almost immediately. It caused immense problems on the afternoon of the second day. And subsequently, um, you can hear on the tapes, the only way they were able to get the thing to revolve at all was by getting every single person that was on the stage, like in some, you know, some crazy Steve Reeves movie. Everybody is kind of heaving and hoeing and shoving. And you can hear this kind of like grinding noise as the thing revolves. But it was nearly impossible to get that to work at a certain point. Great idea, miserable execution. And also, you know, that was also complicated by the fact that there are people, hangers-on, guests, band members, people who just kind of drifted in and wound up on, on the back of the stage, crowding everything. So at a certain point, it became nearly impossible to manipulate that thing just because there's so many, there were so many live, warm bodies. You can hear the announcers, like, throughout the festival basically trying to clear people off the stage. But it becomes a particular problem, like, by day three, when, when the stage has just become this kind of this nesting zone for, for everybody who needed a place to go that sort of knew somebody in a band. That alone, I think, was really, by the end, the, the biggest problem. I mean, they yeah. could always get 20 stagehands to shove that thing, but they couldn't get 300 people out of the way in order to get them yeah. off. We apologize for the uh, noise of the choppity-choppity, but uh, it seems there are a few cars blocking the road, so we're flying everybody in. I almost made the worst pun in the world about high musicians, but we'll skip that. The microphones were on stage, uh, very simple microphones, not really fancy, and that was traditional for live performances. You didn't bring the most expensive, fragile microphones. You never know when a sweaty singer will kick something over. But you'll see them in the movie. There's a lot of performances with the same microphones being used over and over again for the same performers. And again, a drum set may be small for one group, maybe large for another group like The Who, and they have to make it work. They don't have a plan, they don't have options, they just have to make it go. Uh, the microphone's cables traveled quite a ways, again, forward to the front of house, which is where you have a man sitting in the front of the stage with the audience, mixing the sound that the audience hears. That's not recorded, but that is rec sent backward as well to the truck. It's more of a portable office trailer sitting behind the stage, and they would set up a an impermanent kind of recording rig back there, and it wasn't a full studio console, like we might use now, uh, modern remote recording, modern, uh, I guess we'd call it, modern remote recording uses a proper studio setup. You have a proper console, things like that, but they had these little portable microphone mixers. They were not designed for anything but like a simple church or maybe an, an outing like a fiesta or some kind of party, and that's what they were using. They weren't really exceptional quality, they were decent, but they didn't have a lot of options. And if somebody sings too loud, they distort heavily. It's part of the sound we hear on, like, Sly Stone's lead vocals. He goes from whispering and singing to screaming, and the channel just overloads and makes that fuzzy, distorted sound. So we get a little bit of that, which we cannot control afterwards, but it's part of the sound you're used to hearing from all the Woodstock releases and the film and so forth. The qualities of that system are obvious. It's not a full-fidelity system. It's not hi-fi but it is actually capturing kind of the energy of the performance. It captures the, the gist of what went on. And yet some of the groups, because they have controlled volume levels, they're not screaming, they're not playing too loud, they actually have a very beautiful sound. Groups like Credence sound like a record on stage, and other groups like Sly Stone, who are amazing, are difficult to capture because of the wide range and the number of singers they have changing parts all the time. No one could handle that with the few microphones and the few channels they had to work with, but they did at least capture a bit of it and they worked with it. 
So the microphones that were on stage often picked up kind of by accident, ambient noise and things that were happening around. There was generally one mic during most of the sets that was pointed at the audience. Um, in a sense, if you think about the, the Woodstock tape setup, the multi-track setup was eight-track tape where one track was always uh, a sync tone that was used to sync up the f- rushes from the movie to the, to the music. One track was generally always audience, and that leaves just six tracks for regular audio, for the guitars, bass, drums, vocals, that kind of thing. But that audience mic was a really useful tool, I, I think, that we found over and over when mixing. It picked up lots of things that, that no one ever thought it would pick up. You can hear conversations happening on stage between roadies, you can hear people in the audience quite clearly at, at certain times, depending on how the microphone was angled, shouting out for various things. You can hear bits of conversations there. At certain other times, you kind of hear, you get more of a kind of a, a large scale ambient sound. It gives you more of a sort of a feeling of like a crowd humming. You get a sort of a, you do get that kind of, it gives you a sense of space and, and definitely and, and geography as well. It does kind of pull you right back in. It's fascinating to hear. And I think we made pretty good use of that in all the mixes. It was kind of a secret weapon a lot of the time. So, yes, there's a ton of ambience like that. And there's also, in addition to the multi-track recordings, there were also the, the guys at the desk, there was also, there were two mono recorders that were capturing the, the direct feed. So, for a variety of reasons, those mono recordings are often incredibly useful to us now, particularly on things like isolated vocals, on the stage announcements that you'll hear throughout all of these, these Woodstock sets, people talking. Often on the multi-tracks, the versions of those, the versions of those, those spoken interludes are, they're quite echoey and, and, and a little bit difficult to kind of discern properly. But on those mono tapes, they are clear and loud and direct and forceful. And so we've made really good use out of that as a source for much of the spoken stuff. You know, as a lot of people know, because it's in the movie and it's a kind of, it's part of the Woodstock folklore, there is a torrential rainstorm, which was not the first rainstorm at Woodstock, it's just the best documented one, that happened right after the end of Joe Cocker's performance, literally seconds after Joe Cocker leaves the stage, this incredible torrential downpour happens. And the microphones were running, and so you can hear everything going on. You can hear John Morris, the stage manager, trying to clear the stage. You can hear him trying to get them to kill power so that people don't die. You can hear an entire sort of exciting drama unfolding and then you just get this pounding slamming rain noise for seven eight nine minutes on the tape virtually all of which we've used we've given that to you as a kind of an environmental recording you can really sit there and hear and feel just how you know in a sense miserable this must have been you know it's late august it's hot it's sticky and you're getting you're getting pounded with rain and somebody forgot to turn the uh, tape recorder off, basically. So we're just it's yet another sort of Woodstock technical error that we've managed to use to our advantage. While we switch over, it looks like we're going to get a little bit of rain, so you better cover up. If it does, if it should, if it should have a slight power problem, just cool it out. We'll sit here with you. Hey, if you think really hard, maybe we can stop this rain. Get up. Please move away from the towers. Please move away from the towers. Jody, get off the stage. Get off the stage. The wind is blowing this way. Please be on this side of the towers. Everyone in the back, please move back. Just take it calm and easy. And stay away from those towers. Like Barry says, let's think hard to get rid of it, please. Everybody be. Let's think hard. Let's go. Let's think. 
I think it's challenging to think about Woodstock as uh, not just a sunny flower power event that some people have an imagination of. It's a uh, fascinating time of challenges, difficult for the artists, difficult for the people in the audience. And everyone I've spoken to that went to Woodstock, from performers to audience members to workers, didn't really have a great time. And yet, the illusion is it was this wonderful thing. Yes, it was a wonderful moment, the music was great, but there was a challenge to be there. And so when you hear an announcer saying, the rain is coming, you're going to get wet. There is nowhere to go. You can't go into the forest of the trees. There's no protection there either. We suggest you just stay where you are and just put up with it. You're going to get soaked. And the sun's going to come out later. And that's a real challenge for most people today to even think about that. But that's the way it was. And they had to deal with it. You've seen the pictures of the muddy woodstock and the dirty uh, blankets on the ground. This is the result of staying out there for a few days when it came and went. But I, I like Andy's choices to be a lot more verite about the event. We're presenting not just a bunch of music, we're presenting sort of how it felt to be at the event. So aside from keeping the rain in, because you really want to understand, we're not taking the music away from you, we're letting you experience what the people felt like having the rain go on. But also when the band stops, luckily for us, they kept the tape rolling. And then you start to get stage announcements, which are some of the amazing moments at Woodstock. Um, there were maybe people you know mentioned at the end of the Woodstock announcements. One friend of mine is mentioned. And things like that happen where you understand the challenges. You know, Tommy, your friends are leaving in half an hour. Meet them at the car. That's a simple one. But there are ones like someone's having a baby and so forth. So we love the fact that to present the event with some of the extraneous material. No, it's not every minute of Woodstock, but it's most of it. So these are eight-track tapes. Most people nowadays have unlimited channels. And in the heyday of 70s, 80s music, 24 channels was common. But in the 60s, the, the most modern format was eight-track tape recording. And as Andy's mentioned, we have a camera sync tone, which is always going to use up one of your tracks, not usable for sound. Uh, another channel is always used for the audience and the ambience. So you hear clapping and announcements. And that leaves us six tracks for the music to be recorded. Some groups, that's great. You'll get a kick drum track the drums themselves, bass, guitar, keyboards, and a vocal. You've covered it. But what if you've got two singers? What if you have horns and backup singers? Right. What so, if you're Sly and the Family Stone? Yeah. Where there's, there's what? Two eight, keyboard nine, players, ten people on guitar, stage. bass, people singing, horn section. Right. Or Blood, Sweat, and Tears, where you've got, you've got 
four or five horn players and a keyboard player and a vocal. I mean, you've got, so very, very large bands were at a real disadvantage technically at Woodstock because they, there was so little tape space for them. The, the real estate was so limited. And it, it, it affects our choices now in terms of how we approach this stuff and how we can mix it. So, you know, in some cases, in some cases we get really, really lucky. But certainly I would say it's probably most of the stuff where there's a fairly minimal band or a fairly sparse lineup tends to be slightly maybe easier to mix than yeah. the, the stuff where, where you've got, you know, where you've got like the, a cast of thousands, certainly. And that being said, when you've got a busy drum set, like Keith Moon from The Who have had all kinds of percussion and drums going on, but he's basically given one channel of the tape because they have drums, bass, guitar, and then multiple singers. They're all singing too, so you've got to give them vocal mics and vocal channels. So although they're not a large group, it ate up all the channels and even had some compromises as to what went where. There's a lot of mushy drum sounds at Woodstock. I did finally, I finally figured out, like, mm -hmm. I've concluded, like, who had the best drum sound at Woodstock, mm. and it's, for sure, it's Spencer Dryden from the Jefferson Airplane. Oh. That is, it's the best rendered and best recorded drum sound out of anybody at Woodstock. He for, is great, too. And yeah. he's a fantastic <laughs> drummer, but just the sheer sound of those drums. You know, it's not necessarily, you know, Moon is a dramatic performer, and he's, yeah. he's indelible, and you absolutely know when he's playing, and he was, he was on fire at Woodstock. Yeah. But just in terms of, like, what got on tape, like, if you were just kind of listening to drum tracks, yeah. Spencer Dryden, for sure. It's an interesting challenge to compare what we know from the visuals of the film, your impression of that, which was a highly doctored thing too. Some of the audio was not real, some of the audio had flanging or some kinds of weird effects added to it to make it more of an experience. Maybe like you were tripping or maybe it was more incredible than it was. We're doing a very literal version, but on the famous Santana section, you see this amazing drum section from Michael Shreve on Soul Sacrifice, and he's an incredible drummer. And but the track is a drum track. It's a monodrum track. It's not in stereo. It's not that exciting sounding. And when you're not watching him, it doesn't slay you as much as watching him. He steals Woodstock from everybody. He is probably the focal point for many people that see the film. And yet in the recording, it sounds really good. It sounds great. You can hear he's playing well. But the visual part of it, same as it is with Jimi Hendrix and Pete Townsend, they're a visual component to their playing that is so much better than just what you hear. Brian makes a really interesting point about the difference between Woodstock, the reality, Woodstock, what's on those tapes, and Woodstock, the movie that everybody kind of knows. 
And, you know, it's, it's very important to distinguish between what we think we know about Woodstock from the movie, which is a very constructed, very manufactured version of Woodstock. It's a great, great movie. I mean, there's no, there's no getting, it's one of the most exciting music films ever made, and it really kind of captures the moment, and it's very, and it's, it's, it's you know, it's wonderful, and if you haven't seen it, you should watch it 300 times. But that's not all of Woodstock, and I think people for decades have had this impression that that's what Woodstock was. And a lot of what we've done is we've tried to, I think we've tried to resituate Woodstock in something approaching reality, in something approaching real space and real time. And this is, you know, that version is there and it's, and it's spectacular. But this version is here and while it may have less, less theatrics and drama and pyrotechnics, it really sounds incredible when you kind of, when you, when you kind of give yourself over to it and you hear all of it as opposed to just this kind of highlight reel, which is what Woodstock the movie is. And it's not even a full highlight reel. They were, you know, the filmmakers had as much technical difficulty as the, as the audio people did. So there are fantastic performances from Woodstock that aren't in the movie because they simply weren't filmed. They just, they didn't get the footage or it was too dark or something went wrong. So there's plenty of stuff that had it been in the movie, we would think about that as being every bit as iconic as we think about Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner. It's just, they couldn't use it or they had nothing or they, they just, they forgot to shoot it or they weren't prepared for it. So the moment with Abby Hoffman is one of those great moments. <laughs> yes. It would probably be the highlight of Woodstock had it been filmed, but the concept is the film crews had multiple cameras and the film has a limited amount of time per reel. So they synchronized them to start together so they would always run out together and they asked some of the groups, could you please take a brief break, less than a minute, so we can change the film reels. And they'd ask the who to break at one point and during their set, and the Who stops during the performance of Tommy. And because there's a break, Abby Hoffman, political activist, who had done acid for the first time that day, I believe, comes running out on stage up to Pete Townsend's microphone, and he starts ranting and raving about John Sinclair being in prison, which was a very hot topic at the time and certainly important to him. But in the middle of a Who concert, not the most welcome thing. So you can hear on the tape, although we have no film of it, Pete Townsend coming up and saying, fuck off my fucking stage. And then from various descriptions, he seems to have hit him over the head into the audience with his guitar, which would probably be the highlight of Woodstock had it been it captured would, on film. It would, be a, it would be a Pulitzer Prize winning news photograph anyway. Yeah. <laughs> just, you can actually, if you're, if you're listening carefully on, on the, the new mix we've done of the Who set, and Brian has kind of blown everyone's mind with this new, this brand new from scratch mix he's done of the Who set, which is extraordinary, if I say so myself, and I'm saying so. I like it. If you listen to Brian's mix of the Who, you will hear during that, that Abby Hoffman stage intrusion moment, you can hear that moment when the guitar goes clunk against this, this kind of, it sounds like a hollow object, which I'm assuming is Abby Hoffman's <laughs> uh, skull, yeah. I guess, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's a little bit of like, it's a little bit of documentary realism for you. Well, it's a whole lot of documentary realism, but we did get that one moment in audio form. No one seems to have even taken a still photograph of this. It's kind of remarkable. There are 8 million photographs of the Who playing at Woodstock, yeah. and none of the people who shot the Who playing at Woodstock, to the best of our knowledge, caught the moment where Abby Hoffman is on stage being chased off by Pete Townsend. So to be fair, it wouldn't have happened if they were filming because the camera reels were needing to be changed. So the moment came about because of the camera reels changing. He came on stage, was booted off. Then they proceeds into the next song, which I think is, Do You Think It's All Right? Mm -hmm. And Pete's guitar is now horribly out of tune because he's hit someone over the head with it. 
and he stops the song, really pissed off, and then we captured another moment, and he's far away from the microphone, muttering on stage, really, but uh, we turned it up as much as possible, trying to take down the noise and things, and he says, the next person that walks on this fucking stage is gonna get fucking killed. And everyone laughs, and he says, you can laugh, but I mean it. And seriously seems, again, interrupting any performer, especially them in the peak of what they're doing, is a dangerous thing, and it certainly was a warning to everybody else not to try this again. Sure. I think the politics of this event is about freeing John Sinclair from prison, who's facing 10 fucking years for two joints of marijuana while we're all sitting here digging rock music. That's the politics of the situation, and I think we like ought to do something about John Sinclair and what the White Panthers are going through up there in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that's what ought to come out of this fucking conference. It's definitely worth mentioning that most of the performers that played at Woodstock, when you talk to them, when you ask them about the experience, everybody is at best ambivalent. There's, there's nobody, I've never talked to anybody who was involved performing at Woodstock that, that will, no one will ever tell you, oh, that was the best day of my life. Man, we were good. We were amazing. Oh, that was fun. I'm so glad we were there. No one, no one does that because they were all really there. And so therefore they understand just how in a sense, what a, what, a, what a grim slog it could be over the long haul. That doesn't mean that just because somebody remembers something as having been a miserable experience doesn't mean that they were bad at all. I mean, Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey for decades have kind of talked about Woodstock, the, the misery of Woodstock and the awfulness of Woodstock, and yet they delivered like what might be the most extraordinary performance of the entire festival. It's, it's beyond great. It's them at the absolute peak of their game. They're, they're just, they're blazing. And the same would be true probably for, certainly like John Fogarty has talked about what Woodstock with some level of ambivalence and the Credence performance is, it's stunning. It's unbeatable. And you know, you could go on and on about this. I mean, from, from the well-known people to the less well-known people, they all across the board are kind of like, oh yeah, that. Mm, well, okay, I guess it was all right. I mean, you think it was any good? I don't know. I haven't heard it in five decades. There's one group that I heard mention Woodstock fondly, and it doesn't mean that they thought it was their best show or anything, but the bass player and drummer from Salon the Family Stone, which is Larry Graham and Greg Erico, have said they remember the response from the audience being the most incredible. Because they were used to playing Fillmore, places like that, Winterland maybe. And so these are theater-sized venues, couple thousand people. Um, you know, some outdoor festivals had been done and they had played some, but Woodstock was a nighttime show for them. They saw only the lights. They didn't really know what was going on out there. They couldn't really see the field or the people. And so when they finished a performance, they looked up, they stopped, had a break in their long set, and this huge roar of sound came out and surrounded them. So they remember being well impressed by that. That's actually something you hear a lot of at Woodstock, when, particularly with performers that play in the daylight, where they're really, they're really looking at the audience and they can really grasp what's going on. They all seem to express some level of like, holy shit. You yeah. know, there's some real awe going on. I mean, you can hear it in the, the canned heat set. Um, you can hear it from a lot of the people who played on the first night when nobody knew what to expect. And they're all a bit stunned by what they're, they're walking out onto a stage and confronting. But that continues throughout. I mean, that, those were, this, this was an extraordinarily large audience. You know, even by the standard of large audiences of the time, this was, yeah. this was five times bigger than anything else that was going on in 1969. So, yeah, there was a certain, yeah, there is a certain sense from a lot of the performers that, like, y- you knew something was going on or you knew something was different when you walked out and you saw this staggering amount of people in front of you. I mean, it almost becomes an abstraction when you're out in front of it. I mean, I think it would have to be or you wouldn't be able to play. You'd just be terrified. 
I'm just going to say that uh, one of the nice things is leaving in the stage patter, the chat, the announcements, and things like that, because it gives you a lot more of the flavor and color. And I like to hear performers and see how they are. Some people relate to a big audience like you typically do, but some people are very casual or a bit nervous, you can tell. There's a guy named Bert Somer who's one of the hugest discoveries of our going into Woodstock. He's absolutely a monster performer. He's far more talented than most of the people that went on to become famous and was written out of the history, taken off the poster. Well, he's not on the poster, not in the film, not on the records. And he's also a relative complete unknown to everyone there. And he's as casual as if he was in a coffee shop on Thursday afternoon. He's True. just so, he's yelling, hey, anybody from my hometown? And he's talking to people on the stage and just absolutely full of, of comfortable confidence. And then he does this amazing set. Yeah, no, he's really, when people, whenever people ask me, like, what's, what's really great at Woodstock? I mean, I've heard Hendrix, and I've heard The Who, and I've heard Janis Joplin. Like, what should I know about? What's the, what's the best thing I don't know about? I mean, the answer, like, I mean, I think it's your answer, too, right? Yeah. I mean, my answer is always the, the Burt Summer performance, for sure. And then people go, who? Mm -hmm. I remember putting on the tape for the first time. Don't know Burt Summer. I know a lot about him now, but we've studied yeah. him quite a bit. I knew, him, I, I knew him from the, he'd sung on a couple of left bank tracks. That, right? That's what I knew him from. And he's also the guy in the famous Wood Broadway poster of Hair with the big afro. That was him in Broadway. But we didn't know him from a Woodstock performance. We put on the tape and I was just amazed working on the first song that the first song was so good. I mean, A-level music, absolutely as good as anything we were gonna hear. Second song, just as good, maybe better. Third song, the same, but different style. Fourth song, again, and every song in his set was jaw-droppingly A-quality, A-plus in some cases performances. He got a standing ovation at Woodstock. The first standing ovation, not yeah. Richie Havens or anybody. He did a cover of Simon and Garfunkel's America, and it just stunned people how good it was. Yeah, it's flabbergasting. By the way, there's a plaque at the site of Woodstock listing the performers, and he's also left off of that. There's a couple of, like, I think there's, I think he's left off, Quill yeah. is left no. off, the Keith Hartley band is left off. I think there might be one other. Yeah. And John Sebastian's name is misspelled, which would make me homicidal if I was John Sebastian. I would just, every time I thought about it, I would just want to hurt somebody. Counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike, they've all come to look for America. They've all come to look for America. All come to look for America. One of the things that, that people will hear for the first time this year on these various packages is a performance by a British group called the, the Keith Hartley Band. Not particularly well known in America, but they had an audience in England and they, they were a kind of a hot touring act at the time and they were brought over to play Woodstock, just like their label mates 10 years after who, who are quite well known for being in the movie. The Keith Hartley Band weren't in the movie because just before they played, their manager confronted the film crew and basically said, pay us, pay us money right now or you can't film. And the film crew, quite correctly, because they had 31 other bands to film, just said, like, who the hell are you? Fuck off. No, we're not paying you. Don't be ridiculous. So they weren't filmed, which is why I don't know whether they would have been in the movie or not. So there is no film footage of the Keith Hartley Band. But it was thought for many years that there were no recordings of the Keith Hartley Band 
either. But that's not true. They were recorded just like everybody else at Woodstock. It's just that no one cared because there was no film footage and they didn't really go on to kind of fame and success. When Brian and I got to their performance, literally, we were the only people, no one had touched that tape since Woodstock. The original rubber band that somebody put on that reel in 1969 was still wrapped and crumbling around the tape reel. We had to kind of scrape it off. So, you know, it's a bit like walking into, it's, it's the musical equivalent of walking into King Tut's tomb. You know, here's the, here's the mysterious lost performance from Woodstock that no one's ever heard. Literally, no one ever even thought to play it before we got there, which is kind of, it's ridiculous. If I were a you were a lady. Would you marry me? But yes, everything was recorded, uh, with the exception maybe of a couple of, uh, couple of as, they, as they got closer to the end, they got a little sloppier when they were recording. So you get a few gaps here and there on the tape record where they forgot to run in crossover. Um, so we're missing, for example, we're missing at least one and a half songs by Sha Na Na. Maybe even more, but one and a half that I know of during the gap of tape that occurs about two-thirds of the way through their set. But beyond that, and it's, it's difficult to know, some tapes have gone missing over the years. So they may have been recorded and we simply don't have those tapes, or they may not have been recorded at all and no one's ever going to hear them. But for, for our purposes in 2019, we have done everything we possibly could to find everything. That's basically the one chunk of kind of musical connecting tissue that I couldn't find. But other than that, yeah, it was all recorded and it's all there. Every tape that exists has been through here. There are copies of tapes, there are original tapes, there are also some simple reels that the man who was mixing the sound happened to run at his soundboard. A different kind of tape recorder, just mono, one channel of what was going through the PA system. So the PA system sound is his mix combined with whatever was on stage, loud drums, he might he might not have as much drums in his recording, but we at least have a version of it from what people heard over the PA system. I've always thought it would be cool to go out in a big field, set up some big speakers, and play back his version of the actual PA mix. It would be a really great event if we can ever think to pull it off. Mm-hmm. I've, that's, I've talked to the Woodstock Museum people about doing this, so I'm yeah. hopeful that one of these days maybe we'll, we'll do something like that. It sure would be fun to experience the sound that was coming off the speakers in the place it was done. But his sources became also useful to us because sometimes there'd be a glitch or a hiccup or a disconnect in the recording truck. And the fact that he recorded something means we do have a recording of this. And it may not be the same sound quality or the same level of perfection we're trying for, but it's better than nothing. Great to have it. So as far as kind of maintaining a certain, a certain sense of the original intent or the original sound that's on the tapes, you know, I, I think Brian and I at a certain point really decided that, that this is kind of like us and Woodstock, it's like Star Trek, it's the prime directive. You don't really want to interfere unless, unless something is so 
absurdly wrong that you have no choice but to interfere in order to make something listenable. Good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. Now, it's not going to be steak and eggs or anything, but it's going to be good food and we're going to get it to you. It's not just a hog farm either. It's like the old High Mountain family and the pranksters and everybody else that has volunteered and put in their time into the free kitchens. In fact, it's everybody. We're all feeding each other. We must be in heaven, man. There is always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. So if you want to make it back to your campsites, we'll try and get the food to you. Or if you're staying here, we'll try and get the food to you. Now, there's a guy up there, some hamburger guy, that had his stand burned down last night. But he's still got a little stuff left. And for you people that still believe that, you know, capitalism isn't that weird, you might help him out and buy a couple of hamburgers. Okay. Okay, here it comes, mess call. All right, folks. Well, there's the wrap-up for episode one of Woodstock Back to the Garden, the 50th anniversary collection podcast. The next episode will be the second half of the conversation with producers Andy Zachs and Brian Keyhue. Make sure you tune into the next podcast so you get the complete picture. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved.